Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. When I was at medical school, and that wasn't that long ago, we were taught that low vitamin D caused rickets and osteomalacia. Nowadays, vitamin D deficiency is associated with bone pain, weakness, fatigue, cardiovascular disease, cognitive impairment, childhood asthma, cancer, and now, of course, COVID-19. But does vitamin D replacement improve any of this? And if we're not sure, what should we be advising our patients? We speak to Andrew Gray about the evidence for vitamin D replacement, and to help us navigate the uncertainty, we talk to philosopher Tom Chatfield. I'm Tom Nolan, clinical editor at the BMJ and GP in London. I'm bringing some sunshine to the podcast today. We have Jenny and Navjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And welcome back, Navjoy. Hi. Hi, Tom. So I'm Navjoy Larder. I am um, head of education at the BMJ and I'm a GP in London. And welcome back. Yes, we really missed you last episode. It's nice to have you back. Well, I think um, Emma did a stellar job of, uh, well, I don't want to say sitting in, but of, of, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm worried about my spot now on the podcast. <laughs> well, we're going to give you one last chance and then if, uh, yeah, Thank you. if not, we'll, we'll get Emma back. Good this time. <laughs> uh, so vitamin D, um, it just seems to be everywhere, doesn't it? It's in co- my consultations, the patients coming in asking for vitamin D levels or um, I get a lot of letters from from hospitals um, asking for us to prescribe vitamin D to patients, uh, and then lots from the CCGs too, telling us not to prescribe it. Um, and Navjoy in the BMJ, uh, vitamin D articles or research papers always get a lot of uh, attention, don't they? Yeah, they do, and I think um, that kind of flurry act of activity in primary care is probably reflected as a kind of flurry of activity in research and, and academia. And there's all kinds of um, uh, sort of studies that have been done on a range of different outcomes. And, and we've published some of them um, in the BMJ, but they've always been quite, you know, the, the consistent message I'm getting um, or I've gotten from them is that, you know, you have observational studies and trial and maybe small trials that's, that show one thing, but the, the bigger trials and the systematic reviews um, don't seem to kind of confirm any kind of association yeah. with anything really outside of treating oh, well, hold on, of hold on. rickets. You, 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 you preempt oh, our first interview. Oh, sorry. No, no. Okay. Well, but, oh, no. But, I suppose what I'm trying to say yeah. is it's it's very confusing because you have all this kind of focus on vitamin D yeah. and actually for all the vast amount of kind of papers and mm. publishing that seems to happen about it, we don't seem to be any wiser or it doesn't seem to merit yeah. this but amount the, of attention. the tide of... Um, sort of people interested in it, I suppose, is, continues to rise, it seems. Um, yeah. I mean, Jenny, you practice in uh, Cambodia. Is this something that comes up a lot in your practice? Well, I think it depends who you're talking to. Um, on the one hand, there is a fair amount of kind of these broad health checks that often include mm. unnecessary tests and invariably vitamin D is one of those. Um, but certainly it's a very sunny country um, with high temperatures all year round and it's not routinely tested for the general population. Yeah, I'm just um, looking at uh, uh, an article I've, I've been reading in preparation for this. So in the US in 2016, um, doctors ordered more than 10 million uh, vitamin D tests um, at a cost of $365 million. So uh, it's, it's a big business as well, isn't it? Wow. I mean, that's shocking. And we'll hear more about this from Andrew at the University of Auckland. But I didn't know how expensive that test was. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, I I don't have to figure here, but it's compared to most tests we we run. It's it's really expensive, isn't it? Hmm. Mm. What does NICE say about vitamin D testing? Because the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force basically recommends against screening. Yeah, yeah. Not to put you on the uh, spot, Tom. <laughs> oh, well, there's, the testing is one thing, but then Public Health England's advice that yeah. we take it for like months on end. We just take vitamin D supplementation. Yeah. Really? I mean, there's the testing and then there's also just, yeah, yeah just like 
everybody chuck it down. And and who who falls into that category? Everyone. The is it? yeah, that that Public Health England review, which I think was from a couple of years ago, um, said that all adults and children, I think, should take it. Mm. Um, certainly during the winter months. Yeah. Um, and I mean that's outside of the advice that you have for kind of pregnant women. Um, which maybe is in a sort of separate category, but, uh, or maybe it isn't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, that, that I, was, I was looking at... Um, blanket advice. I was looking at a systematic review and meta-analysis of vitamin D levels globally, um, which at the, at the bottom just mentions that it was funded entirely by a grant from a vitamin D manufacturer and, and co-authored oh, by three of their employees. No. But <laughs> that aside... Well, perhaps you've got to the nub of the issue, yeah. <laughs> that aside, uh, it's about a third of patients um, for, you know, a third of the population have vitamin D levels under what we, you know, what is deemed normal. Um, and in the UK, I think the average was about 55. Um, so I forget the units, but you know, if under 50 um, is a, a, a insufficient level. Right, but but then you have to ask yourself: Does it matter? Right. Well, like, that's, yeah. that's yeah, and that's uh, Jenny. That leads us on brilliantly to the next <laughs> part, doesn't it? Because that's what you looked into with uh, with your first two. Yeah, I did talk to, again, Andrew Gray at the University of Auckland. He's an endocrinologist. Let's have a listen. I'm Andrew Gray. I'm an endocrinologist uh, in public practice in Auckland, New Zealand, and I work at the University of Auckland um, as an academic physician. Great. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, and we're talking about vitamin D. And I wonder if you could mm-hmm. kind of give us a broad picture, a broad description of the utility of vitamin D as a, as a therapeutic. Oh, okay. Well, I think it has, as a therapeutic, I think it has extremely limited uh, application. Um, So, I mean, vitamin D is not actually a vitamin. It's a hormone. Um, It's not something we have to take in our diet. We get it from sunshine. Um, We make it in precursors in our skin. So that's an important point. Um, The phenotype, if you like, of patients with vitamin D deficiency is very well described and has been known for almost 100 years, and that's a disorder of bone mineralization Mm -hmm. because the main function of vitamin D um, is to um, promote absorption of calcium and phosphate, the two main components of bone mineral, from the diet. So if if you're truly deficient in the disease, that's the phenotype. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important point because as we'll probably discuss soon, there's been you know this enormous um, proliferation of recommendations for manage or for treatment with vitamin D for all sorts of conditions, um, but none of those are part of the phenotype of vitamin D deficiency. For example, patients with vitamin D deficiency don't get autoimmune diseases, they don't get pneumonia, they don't get um, cancer, they don't get cardiovascular disease, they get bone mineralization. So other than kind of a weakness, which could, or um, a fracture that would be unexpected, or perhaps an incidental finding of low calcium or phosphate, how how should we be identifying patients with low vitamin D, vitamin D deficiencies? Well, I don't think we should be looking for them. That's part of the problem. Because the prevalence of the disease is so, of these diseases is so low, you need to you know, if you apply the test willy-nilly, you need to test lots and lots and lots of people to find a case. Mm. The other problem with measurement of vitamin D that's a bit underappreciated is that even some of the so-called gold standard measurements are not especially accurate, Mm. particularly at the lower levels. And it's not cheap, so um, many organizations don't recommend you know, routine measurements. So, hmm. for example, the populations which are at risk of osteomalacia, which in adults is the sunlight-deprived, institutionalized elderly, it's completely reasonable to give them vitamin D supplements without testing hmm. because the supplement 
are cheaper than the test. So you can treat someone for a few years for the cost of a test. Mm. I mean, that's so good to hear. I, I think that sometimes in general practice, um, it's not uncommon to have patients come in and say, oh, I want all my vitamins checked and or yep. a friend of mine has vitamin D deficiency or I got screened last year and my vitamin D is low and I've been taking supplements, so I need to be rechecked. And um, mm. talking with you about this makes me um, again ask the question, well, why were you ever tested for it? Um, so what do you think is going on there? Well, I mean, I, I completely accept your point that there is enthusiasm amongst, you know, some parts of the population for lots of measurements. And I do appreciate that it's difficult for practitioners sometimes to resist mm-hmm. that. You have that amongst, if you talk, talk to primary care physicians here, they also feel some of that pressure. Mm-hmm. But I think you can circumvent that with some careful discussion and you know, discussion of the evidence, really. Um, great. So let's dig into some of that evidence. Um, I <clears throat> I know that vitamin D has been studied extensively with respect to fractures, falls, particularly in elderly folks, um, some in the community, some in institutions. I wonder if you can walk us through some of the key highlights. And um, my understanding um, and a lot of this is still kind of an impression I got during medical school, but my understanding is that um, many of the trials have been done have found vitamin D to have no benefit more often than there has been a benefit. So I wonder if you can hit some of the highlights for us. So there have been many, many trials of vitamin D with various outcomes, actually, but musculoskeletal outcomes have been very extensively studied. Uh, And... Um, when you put all those trials together in meta-analyses, um, you know there are tens of thousands of participants in these trials and large numbers of patient years of follow-up, and they don't show a reduction in either fracture incidence or falls with vitamin D supplements. One of the drivers, I think, for the initial adoption of widespread vitamin D supplementation for musculoskeletal health was that one of the early trials was performed in um, elderly um, rest home residents in France and show a reduction in fracture risk. And almost certainly those within that group of frail elderly individuals, there were a number with mineralization defects. They had osteomalacia. And what was shown was that correcting the osteomalacia um, was beneficial. But when you take that trial away from the, the pool of other trials, um, uh, you're left with no effect. So I think it just attests to the fact that, yes, if you're old, frail, not getting in the sun, um, then it's a sensible thing to take um, some vitamin D supplements. But for the rest, it's not. Um, and you know we've you know our group has extended that um, somewhat in, in, a, in a meta-analysis published a couple of years ago where we adopted a, or used a technique which not only assesses the pooled risk for fractures falls you can do it for other outcomes as well but also builds in a statistical assessment of futility so it tells you where we've reached a point with a set of data. Uh, um, a point at which you can say there is robust evidence that there is no effect. And we are at that point for fractures and falls with vitamin D supplements. So for me, um, and I think colleagues, we're beyond the point of, you know, needing further trials. We should stop those trials. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I just wonder, you know, as someone who's, clearly well-versed in this field, you've done research in this field. Um, Why, so apart from that early trial you mentioned in France, I mean, why are we continuing to test outcomes related to vitamin D in particular? It seems like every week I see a new headline, vitamin D in a trial or vitamin D in a study. Um, And I know there's a lot of ongoing research, and that's great. And I also know we're keen to understand 
whether there are benefits of the existing medications or supplements that we have. But it seems like there's something about vitamin D um, that drives a lot of research forward. What's your take on that? Okay, so I think there are several factors. A really important one is that vitamin D is, or low levels of vitamin D are associated with a great many health outcomes, all diverse number, of, like more than 100 health outcomes, a range of conditions, autoimmune, infective. And so that's sort of the model that we often use when we're thinking about interventions. We, there might be animal data, but in humans, we look at observational studies, these associational studies, and say, well, there's a, you know, there's an association here. We should test it in a clinical trial. The trials are done, and there's almost one a week, and this week there was one with depression, um, I think, or a New England Journal, and a couple of weeks ago in children with uh, tuberculosis and respiratory tract infections. I saw that. Um, they're un- unrelentingly negative. And so I think that we need to step back and say, well, what we're seeing with the hypothesis-generating research, the observational research, is that the measurement is just a marker of general ill health and um, it's not a causal association. And I'll go back to the point I made initially. We, when people, we know people are truly vitamin D deficient, that is they have rickets or stimulation, they don't have strokes, they don't present cancer, they don't present with heart disease, they present with hypocalcium, low calcium, low phosphate, bone mineralization defects. So we should remember what the physiology, pathophysiology is telling us about the phenotype of the disease. It's, it's time to move on. So we went into that asking, you know, what's the point in testing? But of course, what's the point in testing if the treatment doesn't work? Is that, I mean, that, that seems to be the, the take-home message from there, doesn't it? Yeah, but what I also took away was, what's the point of testing when it's an unreliable, expensive test mm. where the set of risk factors is very clear and when the treatment is easy enough to take without significant side effects? So why are we testing? Um, I think it really is kind of um, what he said. You know, it it should be standard practice for people who are clearly within the risk group to just take vitamin D supplements. Yeah, but that risk group is very, very narrow, according to what he was saying. Um, Certainly not not what we're seeing in, in our patients or, you know, Right, so I think health England saying everyone should, everyone to take vitamin D in the winter months is, is slightly different to the elderly frail who can't get out in the sun. Yeah, that's right. I think also, you know, we were talking at the beginning about, um, and you were talking in the interview, Jenny, about just the amount of literature on this topic, and I think that sort of sows some degree. I mean, obviously, it answers a lot of questions, but I think seeing. Um, you know, new studies all the time, it kind of as a sort of clinician coming away, if you're just reading the headlines, you might come away with the thinking that there's still um, some confusion or there's still it's still valid to be asking these questions and maybe still valid to be doing these tests for an array of different um, indications. Um, so I think it, 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 it sort of just adds to that air of kind of doubt and confusion, perhaps. And so you end up um, thinking, oh, well, maybe in my patient who's tired, I should just tick that vitamin D box on the blood form. Um, or maybe, you know, in, in my patient who's a little bit, uh, who's got low mood um, and, and wants some answers, you know, maybe I'll just, just tick that box. Um, yeah, a really common scenario for me has been um, predominantly women coming in complaining of fatigue or perhaps something like hair loss and quote unquote wanting everything checked. And it it really raises the question, 
because, you know, and, and sometimes they'll say, I want my hormones checked. I want my vitamin levels checked. And so should I be ticking that box? On the one hand, they want everything checked. And there is satisfaction when you get a lab value back and you're like, here, here is the explanation. <laughs> you're vitamin D deficient. Um, yeah. But of course, that probably isn't right. And yeah. we probably shouldn't be doing that test. And, yeah. and I, but the next bit is they take it and there's a placebo effect, isn't it? And, you know, and, <laughs> Either that or they take and it. it and then and we then... need to ask questions about when we need to recheck. And what does it mean yeah. if those <laughs> levels never go back to normal? Or if they do go back to normal? Or if they get some weird vitamin D overdose? <laughs> But that's, it's so unusual for us in primary care, I think, to be able to, you know, the, these symptoms, which can often be quite hard to pin down or find a cause for, um, there is something very appealing <laughs> about doing mm. a test. There's a number that, you know, um, would suggest that some intervention is required. And you do that intervention and sometimes something happens. More often than not, I find nothing happens because we wouldn't expect it to if we don't think vitamin D is is likely to be effective in that scenario um and I can see how it's sort of so irresistible to kind of you know to look for something like that um and I I mean I came away with the same message as you Jenny that actually there is only a quite narrow set of circumstances when we should be testing or considering vitamin D deficiency but I feel like we're it's kind of too, we're beyond that point now unless we as kind of the clinicians can kind of stand up and really assert that I think this whole kind of milieu that we're in of mm. you know um, the clinical environment where we're doing these tests it's out there patients might be wanting it as well it just feels very difficult to be that lone voice saying I'm not going to do this oh absolutely and Tom as you are very fond of reminding us we also have <laughs> limited time so to oh, sit right. there and explain <laughs> all the reasons why a patient should not be doing this test or why the not test 100%. doesn't make sense just takes so much longer than ticking the box. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, so, so another thing he says, that, which is linked to that really, is that it seems that vitamin D is very much a marker of overall health. Uh, and I've, I've seen this, um, uh, yeah, several people um, talking about this in, in some research for this episode. Um and I guess I was, I've been trying to think, like, what's a good analogy to that? Um, so I, I've got a couple. You can tell me if either of these are good. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit like with anemia. If you find some anemia in, in a test result, um, are you, you know, I think some of us <laughs> would just say just take some iron. But actually, you need to understand well, what's going on in that patient. Um, and so vitamin D, you know, your vitamin D is low. But let's have a think about why that might be rather than just, you yeah. know, take this for the rest of your life. Um, or maybe even low sugar. You know, if, if we did get into a situation where, you know, you check your sugar levels and it's low, you know, you, we don't just say, um, oh, you know, drink some Red Bull. Uh, it's, you know, well, that's, we need to investigate why that would be. Um, how are those? Does that, do you think those stack up or? <laughs> um, I mean, no. I, I, well, I think it's interesting. I, I think it's a little well, bit of why a don't stretch we ever ask why because I think... Yeah. Well, okay, so to take Andrew's point, right, if you have particularly an older person with anemia on a screening blood test, I mean, it behooves us to make sure that they're not having an unexplained or or undiagnosed GI loss of blood or, or basically rule out malignancy, right? I think what Andrew's point was is that the folks who have vitamin D deficiency are not presenting with cancers, are not presenting with cardiovascular disease, are not presenting with all of these poor outcomes that a deficiency has indeed been found in association with. And so then we get into this nebulousness of causation and, you know, will deficiency rectify um, some of the problems that the uh, that vitamin D deficiency has been associated with, and his point was no, right? So, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's telling you something, but it's uh, but, but is it? Know, but but I, it's hard but to know it? how much it's no. telling us. I guess no. is it like no. where? Whereas with a low HB or with I don't know a raised ESR or something that might cause you to go hunting for something. That's right. Yeah. Is do we know enough about vitamin oh, D no, yeah, and its true. associations to know whether we can go? looking for something and I, and I would say Andrew's point was that no we shouldn't so 
Well, so obviously my thinking is a bit muddled there, but uh, that's why uh, I spoke to uh, uh, somebody whose thinking is, is much clearer than mine, uh, and that's philosopher Tom Chatfield, um, who's written books, including the one about uh, critical thinking. And that's coming up in a, in a moment. But just to sort of introduce that first, I'm going to bring us up to date with, with COVID as well. So um, after it, Jenny, I've, I've tried to sort of summarise, to get us on to, to COVID and vitamin D, summarise what, what I could work out about what's going on here. Great. Thank you. So let me know. Let me know how this goes. Okay. And maybe keep your questions for the end. <laughs> it's not that long, but... <laughs> keep your questions uh, for sorry. the end Jeez. <laughs> wow that's very formal Tom back to and lecture the slides will be available after, after yeah <laughs> my starting point is a 2017 systematic review and meta-analysis of, of vitamin D supplementation to prevent acute respiratory tract infections and that was published in the BMJ uh, and this concluded that vitamin D supplementation was safe and it protected against acute respiratory tract infection overall uh, and so there are lots of headlines about this, um, but there were some big questions about the findings, particularly whether they could be generalised. And when you look at the absolute reduction in participants experiencing at least one respiratory tract infection, uh, the reduction was only 2% from 42% to 40 So a very small reduction. Uh, and as I say, some question marks about um, whether we could really generalise that to our patients. Uh, and so when COVID came along, um, I've seen that paper cited a lot uh, with people saying, well, you know, COVID's a respiratory tract infection. Um, and there's some observational data as well. Um, people being admitted with COVID-19, having their vitamin D levels checked, showing that very often they are low. Uh, and so a lot of speculation that perhaps we should be uh, advising it, you know, everybody or particularly at-risk groups to take vitamin D. Uh, but there's been two rapid reviews, one by NICE and one commissioned by Public Health England, uh, and these have concluded that there's not enough evidence to determine if vitamin D supplementation could reduce uh, respiratory tract infections and COVID-19. So we're left in a bit of a, uh, a grey area, I suppose. Um, you know, all this interest, and yet uh, the, the guideline body is saying, you know, we've not enough uh, evidence. So. How about that for a summary? Does that does that do you think that takes us up to speed? Any any questions now? You can ask your questions if you want. <laughs> I do have one. Oh great! Um, because I remember in the early days of coronavirus, um, people putting out all of these um, kind of cheat sheets that they had assembled some of the evidence and kind of best practices into, and some threads on Facebook, and people saying like, "What's the harm?" Just throw vitamin yeah. D at it. And so yeah. my question is, do you guys think that's where we are? Um, clearly, yeah. um, you know, we're beyond uh, chloroquine. We no longer think that's effective. There yeah. are some treatments we're still investigating. Dexamethasone has had some good evidence behind it. But are we still at the point of, we don't know what works. We're throwing things that we at least think do no harm at yeah. COVID-19. Well, that takes us on perfectly to this interview, because that's really what I asked uh, Tom Shatfield. My name is Dr. Tom Chatfield. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a philosopher, an author, and I work around humans, technology, and cognitive biases. Obviously, it's very complicated. And one of the first things I always try to say to people is, you know, don't pretend to be an expert where you're not. I am not a medical expert. I am not fit to pronounce upon that. Sure. But I think there is something interesting going on here about risk perceptions and what's sometimes known as the precautionary principle. Now, the precautionary principle is a very kind of blunt idea, which is usually expressed in terms of the risk of very dangerous outcomes. So if you're facing, for example, a potentially catastrophic change to the global climate, you can't necessarily afford to sit and wait for there to be 99.9999% certainty around actions or inactions. You need to take precautions early on the basis that even a relatively slim chance of a disastrous outcome needs to be averted in terms of real-world risk. Mm. Now, in some ways, there's also the inverse of this, which is that if something which is not very risky at all has a decent chance of a good outcome in a situation of great 
uncertainty, of great real-world risk around the exponential spread of a disease and so on, then there's quite a strong pragmatic case for making this intervention. But what's important, I think, is not to commit a category error while doing so. A category error is when we label one thing as something that it isn't. If we said that vitamin D is a disease, we're going to classify it as a disease, we're going to treat it as though there's a causal relationship there which goes far beyond the evidence. I think as far as possible to be transparent with people about a pragmatic course of action and say there's a low-cost, low-risk intervention here which we believe has some potential association with better outcomes. The mechanisms aren't understood, it's being investigated, it's not a disease, but what we can say is that given the situation we're in, yes, this might be worthwhile. And we see this around, for example, things like masks, whereby I think there was a tendency to want to wait among some people for a definitive trial definitively proving something when in fact perhaps it would have made sense to say this is a sensible practical precaution with few downsides we should be doing it first in order to mitigate against these things. Think about this from your pre-pandemic times you know, a lot of patients will I think come in quite reasonably saying yeah can you not just give me treatment x I know you know I know you say it might not really help very much or there's no gold standard evidence you know I need to go to work or I'm, I'm really unwell. There's nothing else you can offer me. Uh, give me the pill. You know, the risks are very low. And, and I bring that up because I think we're, as we're sort of trained to sort of argue against that. And now we're, we're sort of switched the other way with, the, with these examples with uh, masks and vitamin D. And so this, again, I think is where this double-edged precautionary principle comes in. It's physicians are in a very difficult position because they have people wanting certainties that they can't be reasonably given. People are wanting cures and understanding and in general a situation of fast-moving, risky, intensely emotional uncertainty is one in which a lot of our biases and things tend to surface. Uh, and maybe in a sense it's, it's not unreasonable to be unreasonable in these situations because it's very unclear as to what reasonable guidelines for actions are. But I think there's two things that go together and the first is to say that yes if there are simple, safe, pragmatic things one can affordably and manageably offer to people while being transparent about the limited evidence base for those. In principle there's not a reason not to do so provided there's a kind of coordinated collective approach but inevitably this has to go hand in hand with the other side of the precautionary principle which is to say to people precisely because of this profound uncertainty and because of the exponential risks underlying it don't go to work, don't go out on the streets do wear a mask. It cuts in this direction. Everything should be weighted towards safety early, within reason. Now there are economic arguments and other arguments which again I'm not an expert in, but I think what we have seen in the broadest of terms is that pragmatism doesn't cut both ways. Pragmatism is very much about minimizing risks in a practical scalable way. It's not about doing a few things that then make you feel okay and make you feel as though it doesn't affect you and you're okay to go out and do risky things. So is this, are you getting there to perhaps the, maybe the weakness, maybe not the weakness, but one of the things that people argue against um, some of these things is that, um, you know, well, what about the unknown, unknown unknowns or the unintended consequences? And, you know, are people sort of making this precautionary um principle argument without really thinking through the, what might happen as a result of, of, of whatever it is that we're talking about. So of course the precautionary principle in its sort of pure form is all about unknown unknowns and it makes the argument that with systems like the environment for example or to some degree the human body you should be very wary of you know interventions or, or novelty of various kinds. So you know you, you should try and cut pollutants before you have undoubted evidence that they're causing terrible damage. You know, you shouldn't give people new drugs for the sake of it unless they're very safe and so on. I think where we can perhaps make a distinction here is that in some ways things like addressing or redressing a deficiency of vitamin D or getting someone to wear a face covering, we can have a reasonably high degree of confidence, I would think, that these are not going to have kind of cascading negative effects, that they might in fact be redressing dangerous environmental factors. It's a very fine judgment. It's not one I'm qualified to yeah, make. No, but, 
but certainly precaution, you know, as a word, speaks to, I suppose, the robustness of the status quo. And what I mean by that is the fact that the body, you know, works and regulates itself in a certain way that has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to have a certain equilibrium and rigor and stability and so on. So you interfere with that at your peril. The same applies to ecosystems. The same applies to most ancient complex systems. And so I think perhaps it's helpful to think about you know, minor interventions that, if you like, are restorative of balance, without sounding too new age about this, whereas, you know, sort of interventions that claim to be radical and, and, and curative by, by doing something whose consequences, you know, could be cascading and profound along the line. Okay, so, we, so we've heard two different arguments here, haven't we? The first that really we, we should just stop doing research on vitamin D uh, replacement because we're at a point where we can say pretty much that it, it doesn't help. Um, but there actually, if there is some uncertainty uh, about that, we, we, we can have a path through that with this precautionary principle. Um, but I guess the question is whether, whether there is uncertainty or not. Uh, I don't know. I'm still a bit uh, undecided. I thought that was such an interesting conversation you had with him. I think he really captured this common idea in general practice around kind of offering some treatments. The kind of uh, won't hurt but may help treatment, which um, Tom, you were alluding to earlier. as he was talking, though, um, I noted how he said, you know, this is about pragmatism and about lowering risks. But it made me think, well, what if we can't really measure or estimate the risks well? You know, we've talked a lot about this, um, especially in other episodes, um, talking with Jess Watson about testing and how we make decisions around testing and um, the pretest probability, and you know, if we if we are struggling to estimate risk, then it's really hard to get a sense of what makes sense in terms of that treatment. You know, like um, if people if we don't know whether the thing that they're facing is low or high risk, then it's really hard to say. Sure, this is this won't hurt you; it might help you. And leave it at that. I think that's so true um, that you know that that's a really hard thing to kind of wrap your head around. And then I think the other sort of dimension of that is about this idea of well, what's the harm? And I think we're good. Well, I'm going to make a massive generalisation here. I think we're good at thinking about harm in terms of um, the potential impact on that individual patient. Um, but what I feel I'm less good at. Um, is thinking about the system harm of, you know, the expense of doing those tests, the cost of treatment. Um, and actually, if you factor that in, is it still a sort of worthwhile um, and pragmatic thing to do? Um, one thing I did really um, take from um, what Tom was saying, Tom Chatfield, and, and you always, Tom, but in that interview, <laughs> okay, was, um, about, was about transparency and openness with patients. And I think... This is one thing that um, really struck a chord and something, again, maybe because of time, maybe because just of the appeal of having that label that is very easy to kind of um, enact within a consultation. Um, But I I feel that often, you know, with patients, I don't open up about all this uncertainty um, and thinking about it from a patient perspective, you know, um, whatever course of action, I think that we, we think we ought to do in practice you know we're discussing whether you know should we do less testing um and and whatever it is i think that openness with patients needs to be there and thinking that through um, from that perspective because the the uncertainty is is huge well i I suppose it's very 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 likely that this tablet that you can take every day is, is not going to make a difference to to your life um uh it, it reminds me a bit of the placebo effect and um you know if you actually tell somebody that you're giving them a placebo and and you label it as such then it still has a placebo effect so mm-hmm. i think sometimes there's 
Um, you know, we, I think we worry a bit that, well, I worry that, that um, you sort of break the magic spell of, <laughs> of this sort of medical um, uh, sort of, um, myth, I suppose, if, if you tell people that actually this thing we're talking about is, is not really going to uh, make much difference. Um, maybe I'm sounding a bit, uh, <laughs> a bit left field here, but uh, well, I, well, I think there's something about you know the um, the sort of mysticism of, of the the consultation and, and you know the test we're talking about the treatment we're talking about you know I think we can all realise that not, none of this is really going to make very much difference if we look at it under under controlled um, so, you know, circumstances. I don't know where I'm going with that, but uh, Jenny, you don't, you got your hand up over, over our video. Well, well I. So I think that's interesting. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, not that I, any of us would say that vitamin D supplements are a placebo, um, because they're not. And, you know, as Andrew said as well, you know, um, there, there are actual consequences of deficiency with respect to bone health, bone mineralization. Um, yeah. But I think you know, what you're starting to talk about here and how we talk about these treatments with patients and, you know, trying to convey, you know, because so often people come to us with a question, I've been thinking about this or I read about this or someone I know is taking this. What do you think, doc? And it might be that we say, well, there's really no evidence that it's going to hurt, that it's going to help you. But it won't hurt you, so go ahead. Um, I, I I feel like I often mm. find myself saying that. Um, and the thing that we have to keep in mind is that we are just one of the factors that our advice is just one of the factors that patients consider when they make decisions. Mm. Um, a patient of mine... Well, they, they, they don't just listen to me and... and... I mean, well, only take into account my point. But of in some ways, that's a good thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a very good a thing. A patient of mine had some questions during coronavirus around isolation after a possible exposure, and the you know going strictly by the evidence would have meant keeping her entire family inside for two weeks. And as I was saying, well, technically the guidelines say you guys should all stay inside. Don't see anybody else. Don't leave your home for two full weeks. I kind of felt like I was handing down this sentence. And the patient said to me later, as I was expressing regret about that, she said, well, no, you were just helping us make our own decision. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. It's your decision, not mine. And that's they... true for vitamin D as well. I mean, I think that this is ripe for kind of um, shared decision making and exploring people's kind of values and preferences. Um, but I mean, I think I mean I think that would be you know for something where there is uncertainty. That's obviously the path forward. I guess the difficulty here is there. What we're learning is there doesn't seem to be that much uncertainty in the evidence, at least. Mm. Um, but where there is um, maybe not uncertainty, but a kind of slightly muddled picture is actually what's happening in practice. And so that I think is where that's the bit I find tricky to navigate. So maybe we should go to a second clip then we've got from Tom Chatfield about something called the availability bias. Because um, I think it, it offers at least a partial explanation as to why we're all still talking about vitamin D despite this, uh, what we've been saying about the evidence. Um, so that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice available 24 seven in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. Let's go back to the second part of my interview with Tom Chatfield. 
Cognitive bias describes the fact that under certain situations, our gut instincts and natural inclinations can lead us into error. So what's important to say is that most of the time we use, you know, sort of cognitive rules of thumb, sometimes called heuristics, to come up with pretty good answers to pretty complex questions rapidly. You know, we pick what we want to wear, we decide what kind of thing we, we, we like that we don't like, you know, we, we make decent everyday choices. But under certain situations, these instincts lead us into predictable forms of error. And one of the most famous sources of error in the research literature is the availability bias, which is produced by a cognitive shortcut whereby we treat how easily something comes to mind, how readily available that information is to us. We treat that as synonymous with its accuracy or importance. And a very simple example of this is something like advertising, whereby associating a very famous face or voice with a product sort of activates this fondness for familiarity. It makes us more likely to remember it. It makes it stickier. And thus, we tend to unconsciously equate that with being good, with being important, with being reliable. When, of course, in fact, as so often in advertising and politics, what people are doing is hacking our behavioural shortcuts in order to manipulate us or achieve a result. And I just wonder if um, some of the discussions I have with patients about tests or testing, uh, you know, it seems a, a blood test result is, <laughs> is far more powerful than, you know, uh, a collection of symptoms or um, something else, um, maybe because it's, is that is that a similar thing that it's, it's available, you can see it, you know, it's, um, you kind of equate it to the truth where actually it might be much more complicated than that. Absolutely, yes. And I think, you know, obviously we can only use that which is available to us to think, to work stuff out. You know, it's it's the way that a mind works. But the problem is, you know, if you, something is in the news a lot, if there's a huge amount of coverage around something, everyone is going to walk into a consultation and say, well, what about that? What about this wonder cure? What about this disease? And similarly, if you, as a physician and, and the people you're trying to help are presented with, you know, a range of kind of, of vague symptoms, and then there's one particular thing that looks like a result that looks different to the others, then that available evidence can, so to speak, be used disproportionately in governing your thinking. Because people want to be able to arrive at a verdict, have a sense of control, gain what they think is understanding. It can be very difficult indeed to keep sufficient uncertainty alive in situations where perhaps on both sides of the desk, the physician and the patient, are wanting to kind of grasp at some certainty amid a sea of uncertainty and difficulty. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's very, very important to communicate this stuff honestly without overpromising. Perhaps more important, I think, than any other kind of communication around healthcare because people latch onto things. It is what our minds do. And, you know, the media and politicians are often, not always, some of the very worst offenders in this front. And they can then create conditions of almost a kind of sort of hysterical overfocus on one thing. Yes, I, I know who you're referring to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's so true, isn't it? I'm just thinking again about the, the consultation and, uh, you know, having to avoid the temptation to you know, to use the term disease or to speak about something like a disease, um, it's sort of easier to sell. It's what almost what the patient wants to. Some some patients may may want to um, to hear, and um, and there's so much pressure f from society, from the medical profession, even um, to to think in that way. Yes, there's an extraordinary amount of pressure, and again, you know, the technological context is part of this because you know when you use a search engine, you put in a question and you get answers. That's the way these things work. Ask a question, get answers. And if you can do that online at home every day, then why can't you do that when you walk into a doctor's surgery? Surely, with all that knowledge out there, there is an answer. And of course, the problem is that with all that knowledge out there, there's an almost infinite number of answers. What you need is a really good question. And a really good question is one that respects and preserves complexity rather than seeking to close it down. Mm -hmm.
So lots to, to reflect on there, I think. Um, I, I, it just makes me think about how, how I talk to patients, I suppose. Uh, I used to think my, my full name should be uh, Tom Nolan, sorry for running late. But I might change it to, uh, you know, Tom Nolan, I'm very uncertain about anything. I'm not going to give you any full uh, answers in this consultation. <laughs> Both those things must make you very popular with patients. <laughs> I felt like he really nailed it when he said, uh, we need to be careful about not letting the available evidence disproportionately influence our thinking. Um, and I, I think that is a fine line we always have to walk, you know, when you whether you get a positive or a negative test result, when you have something in front mm. of your face, it's so tempting to be like, "See?" or and, and or and then try to walk the patient back from it. Like, "What is this value? Why is yeah. it low? What does it mean?" <laughs> well, it might not mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think a- I think there are some aspects of uh, general practice that that kind of really um, don't make these things easy. So obviously the time aspect is a huge one of those that within, you know, um, conveying complexity and being open about uncertainty or actually even being able to manage your own uncertainty. I mean, he talks, uh, Tom talked about grasping for certainty and I think that's something I've certainly felt myself doing um, within, you know, within a consultation and I'm sure you know, so often that's the patient is trying to, you know, reach that point of, of understanding and, and knowing something um, where there is uncertainty. But, you know, it's very hard to do that within 10 minutes. But then there are other aspects where you think actually things like continuity and um, establishing a relationship with your patients where actually that can be really helpful. So it's making me reflect on actually what are the ele- elements of um, the way general practice practice is structured that actually make this management of uncertainty, which is so core to kind of what what we do, um, that allow that to kind of um, play out in a way that's useful for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I think in my consultations, I, I, when I'm on a good day, perhaps, maybe, uh, but always trying to to talk through that. You know, there's a few things that could be going on here, and you know, these these are them. And uh, uh, but the problem is if you're not then following up with that patient and then somebody else comes yeah. in, um, it, it's much harder for them to um, follow those things through. Um, so it's just, just the same point, I suppose, we make again and again, isn't it, that uh, we need systems which allow us to, yeah. to follow those things through. And within an individual consultation, sorry, I'm just kind of, this is an opportunity, I suppose, to discuss this with you. What I find difficult when things are, you know, I'm trying to talk through a list of options and discuss with a patient what they want to do. I think within a given time, I find concluding quite difficult unless there's um, a piece of paper to hand over or a specific action to take. Sometimes saying, well, you know, why don't you think about it and we can decide next time or whatever, particularly as a locum when, you know, they they invariably won't see me next time. Um, It is always so tempting to kind of try and do something essentially um in order to move on move yeah forward. I, yeah i think I, don't, I, I think that's one of the hardest things but i don't know i've not worked as a locum but um it's a lot easier when you can say you know just that you know well i think i need to see you next week because we've talked through so much here and we yeah i don't think we're going to be able to reach any um conclusions but even then in some consultations the dynamic it makes that more difficult I think you raise such an important point, though. And, you know, we really do fall back on the kind of, I don't know, the merit that a longer term relationship gives us. It's kind of what um, Iona was talking about in one of our first episodes, you know, that trust that we benefit from even from prior generations, from prior physicians, um, we kind of fall back on like the value of, you know, continuity and being able to see somebody again or follow up on them. And I, I know that one thing I've done a lot, um, this past year in particular has, has been, um, you know, really saying to the patient, I, I have to, I have to check this out for you. Um, I need to, um, consult my network or I need to do some further reading on that. Or, um, I want to talk to somebody else about this and then can I be back in touch with you? And, um, I will say that, um, the internet, um, 
texting, um, emails, different ways of being in touch with people have, mm. have really made a difference in my practice. Just being able to say, I can't answer this question for you right now. And I'm fighting the instinct to tie it all up in a neat little bow. I'm going to get back in touch with you. Yeah. And can I email you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, so I think the conclusion to most of our episodes seems to be go back and listen to episode two where we talked to Iona Heath. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe we should get her back on, see if, we, see if she'll come back on and um, give us a different episode to refer back to. So I think we're, we are getting to the end of the episode, aren't we? Um, so just something I don't, I don't know if you're any clearer on this. I, I feel I feel a bit clearer. I definitely feel clearer about the evidence base, and I think I feel more confident about actually there is very little evidence about um, the outcomes with which vitamin D is associated, um, and actually the my my threshold for doing a vitamin D test should be quite high. Um, and if for whatever reason that might seem controversial, then rather than just defaulting to ticking or not ticking the box, I should be having a conversation with the patient about that. And I mean, that seems like such a no brainer thing to say, because I mean, of course, if I'm doing the test, I should be talking to the patient about that. But I think it's sort of re- reiterated that message for me. Um, I agree with you. I, I think I've taken that away. Um... I, the, I really liked what Tom Chatfield said about um, putting something in an observations or a symptoms box as opposed to a disease box and using that even that kind of way of thinking or structuring things in conversations with people um, and, and like really deliberately using that language of this is an observation or a finding and not, you know, a disease in and of itself. I thought that was really good. And I guess the last thing I would say is um, I, I still have questions about who is at risk of vitamin D deficiency. Um, and I found the argument of just giving people a supplement rather than doing testing when they're in high risk categories, very compelling. So I want to do a little bit more thinking about who really truly is in that high risk category. So for listeners who enjoyed that interview with Tom Chatfield, uh, we've got a, we're going to put a longer interview with him, which goes into more detail about different cognitive biases. Uh, we're going to put that onto the Deep Breath In channel. Uh, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts on so you can uh, listen to that. So thanks to Andrew and to Tom. And thank you, Navjoy and Jenny. See you next time. See you. Thanks, Tom. And thank you to our producer, Duncan Jarvis, who puts all this together and edits out all of our mistakes. And for today's Deep Breath Out, we've got a clip from Duncan that he's recorded for us from the beach in Brighton, where he lives. So if you're stuck indoors, uh, we're going to transport you to Brighton Beach. So just uh, pop a vitamin D tablet. 800 units should be enough. And sit back <laughs> and enjoy. You can't <laughs> <be that> nothing. <laughs>